Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 53. We're here today uh, primarily to discuss a new project that we announced earlier this week, the uh, Donations Drive for Puella, our resident translator of all things Berserk. This is something that we'd been kind of rolling around in our heads for a while, and we just decided to green light it after talking about what we could offer users, what we could do more with the site if we just had a little bit of extra funding to go towards our resident translator. It's been pretty successful so far. We still have a ways to go to reach all the milestones. We're about a third of the way there. But we reached our first milestone within about three or four days, I think it was, uh, which is yeah. $120 a month is going to go towards – well, first of all, all the money goes towards ongoing translation efforts. That is the episode translations you see. All the tra- all the episodes, I think Puella has done – I think she's done the past like 11 volumes or something like that. Like a ton, a ton of material of the recent work has all been done by Puella episode by episode in her own spare time. And for those that don't know, Puella is a professional translator. So when she's not working on, you know, stuff for her real life job, she would then work on Berserk stuff, which is, it's gotta be kind of a grind. Another thing a lot of readers might not know is Berserk is not a fun series to translate. It can be pretty intense in terms of the language that's used, the, the, some of the characters and the, the kanji they're called. Uh, are often archaic, requires... Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of idiomatic expressions as well. Like, you know, there's a, when it's Ganishka or something like that, he's going to use a lot of very old archaic words or stuff that's not really even used. In, you know, that even Japanese people might have trouble understanding, you know, if they're not well-read. And uh, then there's stuff that Perk or Isidro or Isma will say that's very... It's like slang that young people would use. So... Or that, you know, people from a certain region of Japan would use. Mm-hmm. So it, it's funny to Japanese people in context, but it's, it's uh, you know, like equally hard to translate for, you know, an English audience. Yeah. I've heard people say like, well, my Naruto episode came out last week and I already have a translation for it. Why isn't Berserk? Well, Berserk's a way more complicated series than any Shonen series in terms of the language that's used. So that's a big part of it. But anyway, uh, let's talk about some of the things that, uh, why are we doing this? So the idea actually struck me a while ago when I was preparing for uh, the Miura themed podcast. I think it was episode nine or 10, a long time ago, almost two years ago. It struck me as I was doing research on Japanese sites that people that natively speak Japanese have access to a ton of more reference material on Miura's life and they have a better picture of who he is as a person because we have this idea of Miura as a kind of a recluse, which I guess he kind of is. But it's not like he's like a Salinger where he never gives interviews. He gives lots of interviews. We just don't know about them or we don't get them and and translated. So we have a very fragmented understanding of this guy, which strikes me as weird for being – I mean I'm not trying to boast. It just seems to be the case that we are the biggest and the best and the most dedicated Berserk fan base out there. I've seen almost all of them. Nothing really compares to Skullnight.net. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just trying to qualitatively state that if we're the best – how do we have this giant missing chunk of our understanding of the person that created the series? And so this project is a way of remedying that. So the idea is to, I mean, the main idea in the beginning was to amass 
all, if if not all, then a, a, a majority of the translations that are out there of Mira to get them all in one place and to have them translated, just so we can understand the guy a little better, understand his background, his motivations, the the ideas behind characters, all that cool stuff. I love getting just a small nugget of information about Mira that I didn't know. It like changes my whole day. You know, it's great. It's great information. When he responded to the interview request, you know. That's still easily the best moment in our entire forum history, I think, uh, to get that kind of, you know, one-on-one feedback from the guy that I never expected that would actually be fulfilled. So let's do that again. Let's do something like that. That would be cool. What if he gave us a second interview? Probably not going to happen. But what if he did? There's a chance. Come on. So that's the idea behind this. And we had a lot of early um, support on the donation once it went live on Monday. I'm not going to say names on here yet. I want to make sure everyone's cool with me listing names, but that's going to be a part of every show moving forward is us thanking those that have donated to us. Uh, we have perks and rewards that are going to come along with that uh, as we get further along. Uh, probably in November, you'll see those start rolling out. If you want to see those perks listed, they're on the website. I'm sorry. They're on the forum. They're also on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash SKNet. So go check that out if you haven't already. There are tiers that go up to $10 a month. But, you know, if you don't want to go all the way and get everything on there, the, the highest reward level is guest spot on the podcast. And you can chat with us about the latest episode or a volume reread or whatever it is, whatever topic it is for the day. But uh, then the lower tiers, you know, you get like a little golden Behirit to replace your little Behirit on your form avatar. Uh, custom art from Grail. Those are limited in number, but they're still out there. So, there's tons of cool stuff out there beyond just chipping in, you know, the maximum amount. So some, there's some smaller rewards. Go check them out. But <clears throat> I was wondering if you guys had any other ideas for milestones. Uh, me and Azil have kicked around some ideas uh, about what we could do in the future. Again, you know, for me, a lot of it is translation related. But I think there's other cool stuff we could do. One thing that has kind of been on the back burner for mine and Azil's schedule for, I don't know, something like eight years now is uh, revising the Berserk Encyclopedia, which has been out there for, I think it's on 2003 or 2002 when I first launched that. Yeah, it's about 12 years, I think. And it was a big project at the time. I I had time to Mm. do it because it was between college sessions. It was over the summer and I pretty much dedicated a couple months of time to researching all that and getting it in there. The trouble with that, of course, is that it was... It was just me at the time, and I was doing all most of the art for it as well. And so in terms of quality, it was very stretched thin. It was a lot of information. Not all of it was 100%, though. Uh, I didn't have – I think Azil had just come on board on the forum around the time, and he wasn't quite as involved in the process as he would be if we did it now. And as you probably know, if you're listening to this podcast, Azil has a real ear for accuracy and uh, so he can scrutinize a lot of the information that's in there. And a lot of it's just wrong or a little misguided. Uh, so well, we would like to go ahead. There's, and- there's also the fact, uh, yeah, I mean, it was long ago. And a lot of the information we, we had, uh, you had when you did it was just, you know, just wrong or inaccurate. I mean, Dark Horse had, hadn't even released the manga then. So it's, uh, it was really a whole other era, you know, and, uh, and the movie itself, uh, the, the story itself has moved a lot, you know, forward since then. So there's really a lot of, a lot of things, you know, that need to be changed or just, you know, redone from the beginning. And also beyond that, you know, we have plans for, 
you know, new sections and dividing the sections into logical ways. And really, it'll be a much more complete picture. Right now, it's very scattershot, as you probably know. Some sections look pristine. Others are like, what was this made in 1998? Well, probably it was. So, <laughs> so we'd like to make it a lot more unified. Yeah. It'll be and a lot uh, more cohesive of a design. And, and beyond just information uh, produced, yeah, we, I think, you know, one of the important things in to, to use a responsive design for HTML so that it can be viewed uh, as well on a full desktop computer or a tablet or just a smartphone, you know, so because that's how people consume information nowadays. And so, yeah, so that it, it can be seen in any format on any kind of screen. Yeah. I think there's a lot of information in Encyclopedia. It's still really cool. Uh, that's just kind of buried. And, and so restructuring things and prioritizing certain sections, in addition to all the, you know, little fixes we're going to make, actually, I think we're going to rewrite everything. So, yeah. Just one thing also is that, you know, currently, like, you know, the encyclopedia was a, a reference at the time, and I guess it still is for many people, even outside of Scanline.net. But when you look at the internet, at, uh, you know, there's no, you know, great source of reference. You know, like people will use, uh, you know, there's a wiki for Berserk, but it, it's just full of shit, you know, like, you know, almost everything, you know, in there is just incorrect. And, uh, and so, you know, people need, I think people need a, a, a base of reference, a place where there's everything and they can be sure it's correct, you know, so that they can, you know, uh, hold their base, their, I don't know, theories or their knowledge or anything on it. And so that's, that's what uh, I think personally the, the encyclopedia as a new one should be. I agree. And, you know, it seems to me now more than ever, it's been important to have that reference because it's, I mean, I could be wrong, but, I think Berserk's readership has really, really grown just in the past, I don't know, three or four years or so. A lot of new readers are confused after reading it all in one sitting and they'll turn to a wiki to answer some quick questions and they'll, they'll come back with that false information and then they'll start posting on it. And then it just kind of snowballs into a, just a big pile, a big mess. And so I think, you know, we can help, you know, stem some of that chaos if we just have one reference that makes sense that people have access to. It's not scattered, and is that, and you can stand behind it. So that's the goal behind the encyclopedia. Um, we have not talked in detail about, <clears throat> you know, when we'd roll that out. Because again, I have a full time job where I'm a writer. Uh, Azil has a full time job where he's a writer as well. So it's not like we come home and like let's write some more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're probably talking, you know. Maybe a year out or so before this is going to even become come into fruition. But you know, the forum's been around for 14 years. What's one year? You know, that's nothing in the time of the the span of the forum. So, for those that are patient, it'll be a really worthwhile project. And so, we haven't talked about what milestone that'll be, what amount we're talking about, but some compensation would help in motivating us to get off our asses and actually do that. Uh, so. Look forward to that. We'll be detailing that in the future. And, you know, <clears throat> I've also talked about the other milestones. You know, maybe you guys have some ideas for what you think Berserk, uh, what should, should be translated, uh, or, you know, individual Berserk ideas, projects, special, you know, ideas. If you have any kind of, you know, a concept for what a milestone could be, post it in the forum and we'll talk about it and, Everybody will get a chance to say their piece, and if it's really great and people seem to get behind it, we can incorporate that as well. So let us know. Give us some feedback on what you think about this whole thing, and 
as always, you know, think about how much you can give, if you can give anything at all. If you can't, totally understandable. Uh, it's at patreon.com slash sknet. Finally wrap up uh, volume 10. Uh, but before we do that, I was not able to be on the show last episode to discuss episode 337. Uh, I just have a, a few thoughts, not, you know, a terrible amount, but there are a few things that I, I, I would have probably said had I been on the show. <laughs> and um, I think you guys did a pretty good job. It was the first podcast you guys held without, you know, me on the scene, but um it was a big episode, uh, a very memorable moment. You know, it's funny to see the aftershocks of that slap all across the internet. You know, there was a little fan art thing uh, of Rickert walking <laughs> away from an explosion that yeah. was posted on many places. Uh, I've seen like a video of someone's like, you know, visual reaction to the slap or at least, you know, their reenactment of their thing, stuff like that. And, you know, you don't always get that with a standard Berserk episode. It was a big, it was a big milestone moment for the community and also, well, you know, for the series, I think one thing you guys focused on a lot, which I was really appreciative of because it wasn't something I'd really thought about before, was how unique Rickard is to Griffith in terms of his uh, his placement in the series. He's not a sacrifice. He is someone who knew Griffith as a human. And it's kind of, you know, I think people overestimate this or underestimate this, that it is inconsequential what Rickard thinks or what Rickard does in terms of the scope of the series. He's not a big mover and shaker, but that's why his opinion is important to Griffith. You know, he's someone who he could have influence over, you know, and, and to have someone who was totally under his wing as a human. And now that he's gained power is against him. There's probably a level where, I don't know. I think, I think probably a part of him does feel something for that, uh, so <clears throat> some of my feedback I just had basically was uh you guys had talked about Griffith's armor and I think you were just joking and I don't mean to like come down on you hard for just a gag but the joke about maybe Griffith only has one suit you know why he's wearing the armor but you guys did say you know he came into the world naked so it's still yeah, back- well, go ahead I th- I think we did we did conclude on the fact that uh you know I mean at least I, I mentioned it that I personally think he's Attached to the idea of, you know, like the, the way he sees himself is as a warrior, you know, commander in chief of an army. And, uh, and I think that's, that's, you know, mostly part of why he's so attached to, to that image, to the armor, to that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the way he pictures himself, you know, and the attachment he still has to that persona of, you know, the leader of the, you know, the army, you know, the, the white falcon, the commander, that kind of stuff. I, I think that's, that's, uh, part of why he, he's dressed like that, even in such a, such a setting. Also beyond that, Puella translated the episode, I think it was two days ago or so. And we got a much more fuller understanding of some of the background stuff. You know, I, I had understood a lot of what was said through uh, Azil's summary, which was based on Puebla's quick translation of it, in terms of the post-slap and the slap discussion, which was the meat of it. But some of the, some of the things said in the Tea Party were pretty, you know, important as well. Primarily that the pontiff is hanging around until 
he can put the crown on Griffith's head. And he said that before, but it was reiterated now. And so it's really underscoring the importance of that event coming up. You know, Mira hasn't, obviously, he hasn't forgotten. He's not casting that event aside. He's reminding us that that's still to happen. And so I think part of why he's in this out, Griffiths is still in this outfit is pretty because he hasn't yet ascended to King yet, you know? So he is still, he is still just kind of, I mean, in a, in a positive way in terms of the people of Falconia, he's kind of just an interloper. He's the leader right now, but he's not getting, he's not established official power yet. And so, well, you know, I don't know. I think the, the way, you know, I think Locus uh, commentary, uh, to Rickert, you know, when we saw the ceremony where he called on the souls, you know, about, you know, the div- divine right of kings, you know, uh, I, I think that, Emphasize the fact that, you know, whether he was crowned or not, uh, Griffiths has become a leader, you know, spiritually and, uh, even, you know, I'd say, uh, I wouldn't say politically, but, you know, he's a leader in any case. So I'm, I'm not sure it's really, I'm not sure it, it really makes that much of a difference. It's more like the, you know, literally the crowning, the cherry, you know, on, on top, you know, the fact he gets the, the crown, but I'm not sure it will be, you know, aside from the sim- symbolic, you know, aspect oh. that much of a difference. I, I mean, I agree that the crown is merely a formality at this point, but it's still an important one enough that Mira has reminded us of it twice now, and the pontiff seems to think it's important enough. I don't yeah. think there will be a dramatic change, and I guess there, I guess there could maybe, maybe he's like, all right, now, now I can be femto. You know, I don't think so. Well, okay, there's another part, you know, I'll mention then. You know, one thing I didn't mention before, but. You know, maybe he was yeah more. It also uh, how to say to show that he's not completely comfortable. You know, even even mm-hmm. though he's in Falconia, even though he's you know in such a setting or anything like that, maybe he's still how to say. I wouldn't say he feels vulnerable, but he's not you know like at ease. He's not at rest. He's still you know like he still has enemies or s- something like that. I think in a way this shows that he's you know like how to say. Not sure, so so sure of himself, despite the power. Yeah, he's wary, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not let, letting his guard down. So I, I think so might also show, you know, that kind of, you know, maybe 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 that kind of attitude. I don't know if it's a, you know, a prevalent thing. Maybe it's just in the background, but in any case, I think it might be implied. Sure, that's a cool. It's a cool idea. I haven't really given so much thought on the armor thing. But as you know, the fact, like, you know, it's also the, because Mule says he's there to, to guard Sonia, you know, he's that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, they're having a tea party and they are maids and stuff, but they are guards, and there's Mule who's there, you know. Of course, it's officially to guard Sonia, but in truth, it's because, you know, the two of them are always together. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, like, it's not a... It's, it's supposed to be the ultimate Ethiopia, you know, but the truth is of it is there are still guards everywhere. To get into the palace, you still need to get through a gate to have, you know, a stamped paper. So it's not, you know, it's not mm-hmm. a true utopia. It's not like everybody's equal and nobody's going to do anything like that. No, the guys, the king is still behind, you know, uh, bars and guards and, you know, walls and everything. So, yeah. I actually think in terms of the, the layers of security, we've talked about this before as, Griff, uh, as Rickard. Man, I keep doing that. That whole... Saying Rickard and saying Griffith, whatever. Anyway, the episode where Griffith... Fucking A. (laughs) Let's try it again. Once more. Let's try it again. The episode where Rickard was coming in through the... (laughs) The episode where Rickard was coming through the walls uh, of Falconia, all the layers of security. You know, we discussed 
what threat is this guarding against? What is this, all this, you know, prevention for? What is it meant to protect against? And, you know, uh, I guess you could say a potential resistance over a rebellion army, but it seems to me that the way things have, you know, followed in causality is that all of the entire human race is for Griffith. There might be some outliers, but there are no mobs in the street, at least just yet, you know? Yeah. And there's the uh, he has the apostles on his side. There's no rebellious apostles, oh. and the, the magical creatures are kept at bay by the wingstones. So what is it that all these guards are for? And I actually think, as you were talking about the layers of security around Griffith himself, I think maybe it's merely it's kind of like humans protecting their leader. It's not necessarily. I don't necessarily think it's Griffith, you know, posting all these guards himself or anything. Or maybe, maybe it's just that they value their leader so much they don't want any any harm to come to him. Yeah, it would which, be force of habit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If this guy is so important to the state and the church and the people, of course we're going to give him the utmost security. Which is why that slap is so significant uh, for oh. those that witnessed it. You know. Yeah, well, I, I agree, but yeah, I still think, I still think it could be, it could be that it could have been done differently. I mean, it, it, to me, it's not just because people are going to want to protect him. You know, in any case, I, I think you know, as we can see, Griffiths, even in his camp uh, as a, you know, as a, as a band of the Falcon in itself, you know, he was he was always doing things, you know, how to say, differently from what was expected. You know, be it to uh, unlist uh, defeated enemies or stuff like that. So I'm not sure it's really... I mean, just definitely probably a part of that. But I think it's also because he might genuinely feel, I don't know, threatened. And it's not just... You, you mentioned humans, but, like, we, we've we got this story of two guards being found in unconscious, like, an, you know, an intruder or something like that. So there might be a threat we are not yet aware of, or at least we have just been made aware of. Maybe it's nothing, maybe it's something we don't know yet. And, uh, and there's, for example, just, you know, the Skull Knight. Like, uh, he was, you know, Jose, he was, uh, defeated, we, we could say in a way, uh, on top of Ganishka, but there are still people, you know, uh, agents, enemies, things that could harm him. And, uh, yeah, I, I think he's not disregarding them completely. Yeah, that's true. He does have potential enemies out there. Although that being said, it's kind of a hypothetical with the Skull Knight, I think. I don't expect a retaliation yeah. just yet. Yeah, me neither. But my point is, if you want to find things that could pose a threat, we, we can find them. Oh, even yeah. Though, even though to us as readers, that just seems like now is not the time Griffith is going to get uh, attacked by anything or anyone that poses a serious threat. But yeah, yeah it's, it might be a way to explain why there's that kind of security around the place. And also the fact they probably don't want, uh, I don't know, maybe commoners to come and go to the Apostle Dome to mm-hmm. go see the, the bloody fights or I don't know. <laughs> Beyond all these, you know, story reasons for having guards, I, I think it also, I mean, just visually, it, it lends importance to Griffith. Oh, yeah, it makes him look very special and very protected and very at the height of his power, that kind of thing. All well, that. And it's also a re- reflection of what what type of leader he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond everything, the fact he decided to have guards everywhere, to have these big gates, and you know, Falconia appeared. We can imagine it's you know a reflection of his wishes, and uh, and in that case, yeah, I mean, that's what he wanted—not to be uh, a king among the people, walking, uh, such a thing. He's a distant 
guy who can summon ghosts and otherwise resides in his little perfect garden, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He's not the guy that's uh, seen out at the marketplace, you know. So I think it's a reflection on what type of king he will be and what type of leader, what type of being he is now. Yeah. The only other thing I had about 337 was Griffith had raised this in thread, and I don't think I'd actually properly responded to it yet, but the eating of cake thing. Uh, he was talking about, does Femto actually like cake? What is the deal with this cake thing? And I think, honestly, it's a, it's kind of a clever little visual thing Miura is doing to accentuate just how – it's basically – it's like it's like almost sarcastic. Uh, it's an exaggerated – cute, good thing that he's doing despite being such an evil being. I think it's just underscoring how evil this guy is, you know, that he can do these horrible things and yet still have a little happy moment eating cake. I think it's it's so kind of blown out of proportion cutesy that that's the point of it, you know. I think it's just underlining how evil this guy actually is. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I don't know. It's uh, it's hard to pronounce myself on that, on that kind of stuff. I mean, we don't really know, we don't know much about him and how he sings or anything like that. What he can enjoy, you know, it's a actually it's a very, you know, it, it might seem simple, but it's a very deep thing. It's like what can a member of the God Hand enjoy, you know, as as a kind of physical pleasure. Like we we know, you know, Slan, for example, was delighted to feel the emotions, the surge within guts, all that kind of stuff. But you know, as uh, what once he has received a body, what can he enjoy? Can he actually enjoy sex, or can he enjoy, you know, eating? Can he enjoy drinking? Does he feel pressure, or is he just, you know, so cold and dead inside, or something like that? It's those are very deep questions, and I'm not sure we are actually ever going to get a very, you know, clear answer on that. But uh, so I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's actually very difficult to know whether mm-hmm. he does enjoy it on, on some level. Or, of course, I mean, obviously, it's just a distraction for him, and he's probably got more serious and more nefarious things in mind at, at all times. But of can course. he just can can he just like enjoy the tea and uh, you know enjoy? being blown by Charlotte at night. You know? I mean, maybe. I mean, why, why not? Why not? While he plots, uh, you know, the doom of mankind, it's, uh, it's possible. Yeah, I agree. And those, those are all possibilities in terms of his, um, what he can uh, enjoy as, in, in, as that human form, as that unique human body or fleshly body, we should, we should say. But I don't know. I, th- I think visually that's the effect of seeing this evil being in a human body, you know, eat cake. You know, I, I just think it's a, it's a way of accentuating how, how inhuman he is. I, I think, yeah, what you, I think what you want to say is that it's in a way it's cynical of him to do that. Yeah, know? yeah. It's, it's a, it seems very cynical. The way he's like, you know, uh, I'd say listing all the ingredients in the, you know, herbal tea and that kind of stuff. Oh God. So it's like, oh, you know them all. And uh, he's like, yeah. <laughs> I also know the atoms are composing your body. I mean, I don't know, but it's just, you know, yeah, it feels, it feels pretty cynical. Yeah, I agree. And, it, and it's also telling that when Rickett came, he just, you know, got up and left and uh, <laughs> almost wordlessly, you know, like, excuse mm-hmm. me, I got business to attend to. Yeah. <clears throat> the the expressions on Rickard's face throughout the end, to all, the, all the scenes, they were all very telling and, and very interesting. Uh, like when he first saw Griffith across the, the distance there, the look he had... It's like he'd already made up his mind about this person. He looks almost oh. disappointed to me when he saw him. 
Yeah, well, I, I think, I think much like the reader, Rika didn't exactly know what to expect, you know, when he met R- R- Griffiths. He was, uh, anxious, but he didn't exactly know what he would say or tell or do. And when Griffiths, you know, uh, talked to him like that, like he did, uh, just Rika couldn't help himself. The emotions within him well, uh, welled up and just, you know, he ended up slapping him. And, uh, I think that was really, that just came from the heart. And, uh, I agree. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, by by <clears throat> he's made up his mind. I, I meant what decision he'd make in terms of the sides that he would choose and all that kind of stuff. You know, we talked about that in the past, but I, I think there was a lot visually happening here. And I, I don't think Griffith or sorry, Rickert necessarily knew what he would do because he seemed kind of confused and on the fence until the apostle thing. And then he was filled with terror. And even after that, you weren't necessarily sure what his decision was going to be. But Miura chose to situate this scene on a bridge as if to say that Rickert was walking to a point of, 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 a, of a choice. And he chose the other path. You know, he could have well, crossed the bridge with Griffith or not. No, I, I don't know. I don't uh, I don't really agree with that. I don't think uh, Rickert was ever going, going to – when he said true side, it sounds like Rickert is going to, I don't know, join up with Griffith. And, but – you know, like, I'm not sure that proposition was ever even there, you know, like, I, I'm not, I'm not sure Griffiths would ever have actually proposed to Griffith, to Rickard to, I don't know, join up with a new band of the Falcon and become, I don't know what, a general or, you know, a sub, sub, you know, commander or something like that. I, I don't think that was, you know, even maybe on, on the table. I'm not sure of that, but I also think, like Rickard came to Falconia because he had no other place to be, and he came with Erica so that she would be protected. This was clearly, uh, clearly, you know, implied by the story. Mm-hmm. And he went to see Griffiths because uh, Raban proposed it, but he didn't actually request it himself. Right. And, and I'm not sure, you know, like he went to see him because, of course, you know, like how could he not go? But I, I'm, I don't think he ever planned, you know. I don't think he had a very definite plan, and. uh I'm not sure he, there was ever really an option of him, I don't know, joining up with Griffiths, even though I'm not sure what exactly that would mean. Like, I always picture that he would stay in Falconia and live uh, a life as a rather lowly, you know, smith or technician or something like that. And I think that's still what he's going to be doing. But, uh, yeah, I, I picture, the way I pictured it is that he would just, you know, like, shut the fuck up and, <coughs> kind of take it and just go away but uh, of course his reaction was you know much more violent and uh, vigorous than that but yeah I don't think there was ever any other options than him not really accepting you know Griffiths as it is I guess I didn't explain myself well enough because I'm certainly of the same mind that I I never expected Griffith sorry Rickert to become a cheerleader <laughs> for Griffith I know it's gonna it's gonna keep happening for some reason I don't know yeah why. well I also did it just a minute ago so yeah. I I can't blame you I never expected Rickert to take that position in terms of because he he's he knows too much about the scenario and he said you know you could thinking of guts as like a toxic element he said direct exposure to guts you know. Yeah. So he he knows the situation better than most humans. Actually, all humans except for guts. Oh, what's what's funny actually is that guts. You know, once he got past the point of just get away from me, I'm gonna kill him. He just you know 
he was not very like it, it doesn't seem like he told him as his fucker he just told the story as it as it was and uh, mm-hmm. that was enough you know and, and i don't think he actually tried it's not like you know uh, two parents getting divorced and the mom trying to get the child against the dad or anything like that it's just you know he told him like it is and uh and that was enough i, I think no i i agree and Reading a little bit into Gut's expression, I mean, it's in my head, uh, volume 22, when he told, after he tells Wickert what happened, yeah. the expression of Gut's face, yeah, it's not like he was frothing at the mouth as he was extra- describing what happened. Yeah. It sounds it's, like he told it very stoically, you know? Yeah, and, uh, the boss looks very sad, you know? It's, uh, that's, that's, uh, what really uh, I took from that scene is that it was a really sad moment that Guts had tried to shit Rickert from, but, yeah. But to get back to what I was trying to say was, uh, the choice for me wasn't necessarily whether Griffith, fuck, Rickert was going to be, to have pom-poms at the side of Griffith or, or be, you know, stabbing him in the back with a, a dagger. It was more, was he going to voice his dissent or was he going to silently stand oh. there and like kind of frown and say, yeah, it's, uh, great kingdom you got here. I guess I'll, <laughs> I guess, I guess I'll back away now, scary dude. You know that to me that that was what I expected. Oh, okay. Well, Give, yeah. Given his given his demeanor leading up to this, every episode leading to this, Rickard's been very docile, very just yeah. taking everything in. And so I expected once they met, that was the same attitude he would take. But no, okay. obviously he puts his feet in the ground, takes a stand. Okay, then my, my bad for mistaking what you were saying. It, I was a little surprised actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, that's actually the thing is that uh, this this slap was so how to say big because uh, Ricard has been mostly a docile person. I guess that's a way that's it's a bit insulting, but uh, yeah, it's not completely inaccurate. He has been mostly just you know doing things as he was told and not really making, you know, a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah, it was just, but that's also what I think shows that it was from the heart, you know, it's something, it was just mm-hmm. compulsory. He couldn't, he couldn't stop it. It was just an impulsion. Like to hear that kind of bullshit from the guy, knowing that he actually, you know, sacrificed all of them, you know, even though he could, it's just like he said, even though he couldn't be angry like guts and just, you know, keep that fury and take on the, the revenge, he still, who could he not disapprove and be angry, you know, at it? So that was one thing I thought, yeah, about this episode. It was so cool was when he, when, when Griffith first opens his mouth to talk about the Hill of the Swords, it's, it's as if him mentioning the Hill of Swords is kind of the way Rickert responded to it. It was as if he was reading Griffith's words as casting it aside or just belittling what, what weight that was within Rickert, you know? The image he had of the Hill of Swords then, it was like a, it was like a giant weight inside him. And that's what causes him to, to, to act like that, to slap. Yeah, was, and I, and I think, I think there was also the aspect of, like, did the dream, you know, did, did you get the dream like everybody and did that answer your questions? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's also what he ends up his conversation with is that, you know, uh, their leader wasn't a Falcon of Light. Mm-hmm. And essentially it's, it's, you know, this, you know, bullshit dreams, you know, of a prophecy and the Falcon will lead, you know, humankind to its salvation, that kind of stuff. That's not going to answer, you know, like the death of, of all their comrades can't be justified by this kind of bullshit. You know, essentially just nothing will justify it. Nothing will justify it. And I, and I think that's also what, uh, you know, you know, how to say, prompted Rika to act like, like that. Right. That's a good point. 
Well, that's a good enough point to wrap it up on, uh, on this 337 discussion. I went longer than I had hoped, but it was just, uh, there's a lot to talk about. And it was one of the more memorable episodes, I think. So we'll be mem- thinking about this, uh, from the ways yeah. to come. It's a Very... combination of Falconia, I guess, of the little, you know, Falconia story we forget. That's, and very briefly, just state your thoughts. <laughs> is, it, is this it for Falconia, or are we going to hang around for one more kind of wrap-up episode? What do you think? Uh, well, you know, my, my take is that uh, we will, you know, I think it's a good, you know, a good uh, point to cut to, to guys. I think it would make a great, great cliffhanger. And uh, I, I'm not sure. There, there's definitely uh, some space to to tell more, but uh, I think this would be a really great point to cut to, to Elfam because it would keep the readers in uh, suspense, you know, in a way. And uh, yeah. I always feel kind of lame. And I, I, I asked the question, so that's, that's my thing. I, but I always feel a little lame trying to speculate the exact events when we're going to know the answer in like, I mean, probably a month or so. But, you know, for the purpose of keeping this podcast going, the purpose of keeping discussions alive, it was a punctuated moment to end on if you wanted to say this is the end of the Falconia section. But I, I don't know. Like you said, I feel like there's a little bit of room for more development. To, to have some more hooks for the future. If indeed this is where we're going to be left, presumably for the near future, if we go back to Elfhelm, if the next episode is them arriving on the shores of Elfhelm, that leaves a lot of time, presumably. Yeah. Until they well, come back to Falconia. And so it would make more sense to establish a, a few more narrative hooks to what, for what to expect about what's happening behind the scenes in Falconia, if anything, you know, well, before I'm we come not, back to it. I, I don't, don't know. know. I, I think we already have. Quite a few things uh, up in the air right now, but uh, but yeah, sure. And we are we are going to have to get back to to there to for the coronation. Yeah, no, that's definitely. Also, that's the that's the next immediate event. So yeah, where's the coronation already done for? I think we could be like it could be years before we go back to Falconia, and then I'd say yeah, maybe. But the thing is, like, if we have to to see the crowning, then. Uh, yeah, I, I think we have, we'll have to get back to it in a, in, in a while, like not too long. And so I think that could be a, a good point to develop the rest of the story because I, I do think, uh, we get to see, uh, a kind of little group forming between Luca, Daiba, Rickert and, uh, and everyone else. So high speculation just, that just yeah. struck me breaking, breaking news from Walter's brain. If there was going to be a resistance, if those two guards that were found unconscious earlier in Falconia were kind of a precedent for what to expect from the future, if they were going to – if whatever this unknown force is was going to make a strike, wouldn't the best moment to be at the coronation ceremony when everyone's watching for something to happen and then maybe Femto has to use his powers to halt whatever attack there is in front of everybody? That well, that, cool. that depends. Uh, honestly, it depends on what uh, what the goal is. But remember, when Griffiths was in Shet, uh, all the cushions shot arrows at him, and oh, he, yeah. didn't, he didn't have to do anything. He just, you know, stood there. So yeah, what what is a resistance going to do? Uh, a guy yeah. running with a guy running with a dagger? I mean, <laughs> <that's> just, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but it's just because really, I mean, even without transform, even when it, without anything, anybody could do. I mean. Irvine could shoot him down from a balcony. Rakshas could jump. You know, Zod could just stand up and you know extend his arm. Just uh, you know, a million things that could be done without really. And I think even if, even if Griffiths, you know, took on 
you know, Femto's, you know, looks. It, I'm not sure it would even do do much. I, I don't know. I think it's uh I don't think anything can be done directly against Griffiths right now. I think if there were like like you say a resistance, it would be it wouldn't be people trying to disrupt things in Falconia. I think it would be more like people talking, you know? Mm, yeah. That's good. You know, like I would say almost like the Masons, you know, like the, the Freemasons. People just having talks and you know, maybe or maybe dis- political dissidents. But uh, nothing, not like arm resistance, like what was done uh, during Ganishka's stay in Wyndham. Right. Yeah, it was a little fantastical. Again, it was something that just struck me. But anyway, we'll wrap up there with 337. Um, there's no date yet for the next episode. Uh, I mean, it could be a month. It could be two months. It could be a little more. Who knows? Uh, we'll be back to talk about 338 uh, the week after it's out. transition into our volume 10 reread the last time we approached this we weren't able to wrap it up there was just it's a meaty volume we're going to pick up here right as they're trying to escape griffith's cell with now that they have griffith and tote yeah gut said kind of given a mini torture of the torturer before he drops him into the the, the pit and then the first arrow was fired uh, by the guards that had gathered around the cell to take the falcons in Obviously, that wasn't going to happen because they caught Guts on uh, kind of one of his moods. He has a ready-made uh, reason to take out all of his aggression. And this is really one of, I mean, one of my personal favorite action sequences in the series. Just because you get to see how far Guts has progressed as a warrior. And while they don't put up much of a fight, it's just really cool to see him, you know, really just go to town on all these guys that... Just putting guts against a standard guard and to see that the the, the the level of strength difference it's it's just fun to watch you know yeah but I, beyond, think uh, go ahead. I, I think it's a good show you know like we saw uh, uh, during the the little contest and uh, and uh, everything the fight with Silat we we saw that guts had progressed and we are told that he progressed but this is really a way to emphasize and to show that against normal people he's just become. Like he's he's on an other level entirely, and even compared to what he was before, he's uh, he's fucking crazy, you know. I mean, his skill level and his strength have become beyond everything we've seen so, so far. Yeah, during this whole thing, uh, kind of an interstitial moments, uh, we see Casca kind of take charge. Uh, she's surprised that Guts goes out alone. You know, it's actually interesting. We get her perspective and Judo's later on and even even Griffith to a certain extent, well even silently, well wordlessly give a commentary on Guts' performance out here. And he, like you said, we I think it's like we just said, we're seeing how Guts has progressed. So it's not just the reader's perspective, it's also the character's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I- <clears throat> I agree, and uh, I also like how you see Casca coming to terms with everything, uh, you know, overcoming the shock of seeing Griffiths in, in that state and uh, the mixed feelings she, she has of seeing the princess being all over him, you know, continuously. And uh, I, I like how she gets into command mode and, and gets the others organized to follow Guts uh, as he's rushing to the exit because so far they're all just staying in the cells. They don't know what to do. And there's that shot of her, you know, of seeing the situation and, you know, she thinks to, her, to herself she, she gets it, you know. Now she, she she understands what she's got to do and she gets into that mode and she gets everybody out. And uh, I think it's a, it's a big point 
for her as a character, you know, deciding who she is, what she does, what her feelings for so and so are, and you know, uh, Jose to to get uh, to get in line in in a way. <clears throat> yeah, she's she's able to hold it together and take command despite not being in an ideal scenario, and she kind of tables dealing with that, and she kind of puts that off to on the on the back burner of processing what's happening and just knowing that now is the time for action, not for thinking, and so. You know, throughout this whole scenario, up until this point, she's had little moments of emotional weakness where, you know, she wasn't able to respond as she needed to and Guts kind of had to prod her back to stay on course. Now she's taking action. Uh, yeah, and, so. and I think she's also, uh, in, in a way, she's also made a decision, you know, herself. Mm. You know, things that she, she, she decides that, uh, you know, where she stands and uh, that's also what allows her to, to act. Right. <clears throat> After all this, we get to see uh, this, <laughs> this this general with this really bizarre, gross chin. Oh yeah, you know, I, I love this guy. <laughs> yeah, it's really just the almost like the epitome, uh, the the archetypical loser general to approach guts, and he's trying to reason with them. This guy talks a lot. I would have hated it to have translated this episode. Yeah. Just talks a lot about how they're overestimating the abilities of one man. You know, he yeah. probably couldn't have taken even out more than a hundred soldiers, probably more like a dozen. And then like, you know, four bodies just fall, you know, flying yeah. out from the doorway, crashing. Yeah, he's leaping in front of them. Yeah, that's pretty great, actually. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> As he's, to, you know, weigh, sizing guts up and saying, "This must be, this must really be you." Well, yeah, his sword's probably dull. He's, oh, and my brain falls out of my skull. You know, it's, Mira is really underlining this for us, but just how ridiculous this guy was. He doesn't, he doesn't spare this guy any respect. You know, he doesn't yeah. give this guy any ground. You see his eyeballs fly out and his brain literally fly away from his body. There's yeah. no questioning how what what Mira felt about this guy. You know, yeah, it's it's one of the things that I love about uh, Berserk is that you know this this feels like a very typical scene, kind of scene stories and uh, you know maybe especially manga where you know there's an adversary that's out of breath and maybe at a disadvantage and this guy very arrogantly starts giving a speech on how he shouldn't do that and that and then just guts just you know kills him instantly you know like in in mid speech it's totally brilliant and uh, I, I like it's almost a, you know to me a commentary on yeah. you know uh, some kind of you know trends you know you know in manga telling storytelling as that kind of stuff and yeah the, the following double page where you see guts like you know, uh, killing all the guys, you know, with you know, uh, judo, Casca, and, and Griffiths on looking. It's it's very you know. I, I think that's a, a perfect point to the rush, you know, in the stairs before it really underlines how over, how say overpowered guts is now compared to to everyone else, you know. And I and I find it to be of a, almost you know violent compared to a lot of things you see in the series. Just the way it's done. It's very dynamic, very, very powerful to me. It's a, it's a very powerful scene. <clears throat> yeah, it almost harkens back to kind of Black Swordsman era, uh, first few volumes, and he's taking out, you know, six and seven guards on a page and things like yep. that. Blood <laughs> exactly, everywhere in yeah. the air. But, uh, regarding what you said about this being a commentary on the way manga, manga generally progressed, I, I agree. I remember thinking that when I first read it, that it, it was so nice to see someone rise above that trope. You know, to just yeah. to take a take a stance on, you know, you, you can you can almost imagine if Berserk was a shonen, 
the fight against this loser might have taken three episodes or something like that, you know. And, yeah. and instead, Mira cuts it short, just slices the guy's face right off, and then moves on directly to the next page, you know. It's nothing. Yeah, it's something uh, that he had already done a bit with with Adam, you know, the way yeah. he talks about his techniques and that kind of stuff where we, we find out it's just bullshit, you know, essentially. Right. <clears throat> Then we get this uh, kind of pan away shot as uh, guards had surrounded the the Falcons on the the a higher level, and uh, they're taken out by the King's royal mm-hmm. guards. And King has arrived on the scene with his team and takes out his own soldiers to prevent them from uh, the potential for harming Charlotte. Yeah. And we see how the year has treated the King, and it is not oh, yeah. great. Wow, oh, yeah. it's He's- all. Let's go ahead. No, I was going to say, he looks like he's half in the grave already, you know. Yeah, it's, you know, it's almost supernatural what happened to him. Obviously, I don't think that's the case. I think what happened was his incident with Charlotte and it has basically caused to caused him to, I guess, worry himself to death or, yeah. you know, guilt himself to death, perhaps. I think, uh, you know, the psychological uh, aspect was very, very strong. And we can see he looks, you know, half mad, in, even when he, he's telling them the gas to call the back air guy. But, yeah, I think that had, is what, you know, had an impact on his uh, physical health, you know, is that the whole thing made him really degenerate, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, he, Griffith basically broke him as a person, you know, and, and, and while the king undertook those actions by himself, it all came at the behest of Griffith's commentary on his life. So, uh, it's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. one thing I thought I started thinking about during this reread was, you know, we see him acting kind of like a tyrant here, whereas before he was a benevolent king, or at least, you know, on the surface seemed to be a benevolent king with yeah. the kingdom's best interest in mind. And, his actions here, taking out his own people, and later on, uh, when he basically lies to Charlotte's face and then orders them to pursue Griffith, we see that he's fundamentally changed. Uh, yeah. and it's he's like almost, the- you have to wonder, this is just one example of how he'd abused his power to protect, you know, Charlotte. Who knows what other evil things have been happening in the background in the years since, how the kingdom had probably degenerated and lowered itself during that time span as a result of his mental mental state well you know i think it's uh it's also in a lot of ways the seed griffiths planted that day in the jail you know uh was responsible for a lot of the bad things i i think the king may have you know kept these things very deep inside him and not acted on them uh, till, till now, you know, and the fact Griffiths confronted him and the king actually went on and acted on his persons, uh, on Charlotte. Uh, I think that really prompted him to, you know, go into some kind of spiral of degeneracy. And uh, when he gets to that point where he's going to kill his own man and do everything for Charlotte and that's everything he cares about. And you, you can see on his face, he's really grown almost mad, you know. So mm. I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, like he's crying, you know, everything. It's, it's really crazy. And uh, and even resorting to the Bakeraka, actually, when you see the, the guard's face, as he, he says, so you, you can tell it's something like it's completely taboo. He's grown, you know, he's grown crazy. The, the guards are like aghast, as he says so. so yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. You get a little bit of history about them and actually mentioning their name. It's almost like he's using like a like a secret weapon that people didn't know was in. And obviously, he's common as a guard or a captain comments on that, that he didn't know they were employed in Midland. Yeah. And that, you know, these guys are responsible for the deaths of, you know, several high leaders during the Hundred Years' War. Uh, 
And they're not, they're not, obviously, as a group of assassins that from a country that's not Midland, they're not held in high respect by the other soldiers, you know. So there's a bit of a, of a pushback between, between the, the guards, or at least this particular guard and, and the king. You can see yeah. that the king's favor has been lost among his men, or at least to some extent. The Bakaraka, you know, we're going to get into them further on, but what I like about them just initially is their designs are so distinct. They're yeah. so they're, they're they're all of them are so specialized to their individual tasks. Yeah. It's like, and we see them work together as a team. So you can probably imagine they've worked together for several years to hone their abilities to work together. You have a super tiny one, a, a massive one that can throw, and the one with long reach, a woman with mysterious magical—not magical, but fire powers. So yeah, I wasn't going to say magical; it slipped in there. <laughs> and then, the, and then the weird guy that uh, swims around <laughs> with yeah. the harpoon trident. Excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> but before then, before we get to the Bakaraka fight, uh, there's this moment where the, the guards are pulled back, and we see Griffith uh, looking at guts. Kind of uh, not. I don't know. There's no word for what his expression is because it's completely uh, arcane to us, but. What I wanted to focus on in these panels and, and in Griffith moving forward is, you know, we talked last time about how not showing his face, how keeping the mask on was kind of a – it's a clever decision by Miura. First of all, I mean for a number of reasons. First, it, you can kind of imagine what it is. You don't need to see the full grotesque, disgusting detail of what had happened to it. You can sort of imagine it. But also I think what's happening here in, in these scenes particularly, I think Miura is distancing us, the viewers from – the image of Griffith is Griffith as a human. As yeah. we get to this, mm-hmm. trend, we're, we're in a transitional state between Griffith as a man, mm-hmm. Griffith mm-hmm. as a sort of insane man that was, you know, ra- trapped for mm-hmm. a year in prison and becoming a god hand. And so I think it makes sense that Mira is distancing our perception of Griffith as a, as this, the human with good ideals that, you know, strove for this dream mm-hmm. with, along with his men side by side. <clears throat> Into, into something else, into something a little darker. And, and, and you get that here as Guts is, uh, sitting there, you know, recovering, you know, uh, heaving from, uh, going through presumably, you know, dozens and dozens of guards. Yeah. Uh, Casca takes a moment to, uh, wipe blood off of his face. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think, you know, I agree with what you said about, uh, about Griffiths, but I also think, I'm not sure at this point we're really, because we do get to go back in, in a bit in, inside his mind after that. But yeah, I agree with it that we feel that there's a distancing. I also think if you look at his panels, the way he's, you know, there's always a focus on his eyes. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, in a way we are, you know, shown to experience these scenes through his eyes. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I like those shots, uh, where, where you see the, you know, uh, coming to that scene, you see a shot of the aftermath of the battle. The, the guards guts went, went through, and uh, which I which I really like. And then you you get to see, like you said, Gus is heaving. Charlotte is scared of him, so Casca goes up to him and cleans him up. We, we you know with a close. <clears throat> and I think you actually see a how to say a shot of her face before she decides to go and do that. And I think yeah, that panel is interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, I just think internally she knows that, uh, this is going to be seen by all of them and that Griffiths specifically. And, uh, we will take it maybe as a token of, uh, her love for Guts, you know. And, uh, I don't know the way she does it, the care she puts into it, the way Guts reacts to it, and, and the fact it's all seen by Griffiths 
to me, this is a second point, you know, uh, with what I, I mentioned uh, just before, you know, after the time in the, the dungeon where she's resolving her internal conflict, you know, regarding all of these, you know, people and, and these things. And uh, she's deciding you know, who she's going to be and what she stands for. And of course, Griffith's reactions to that is, is priceless. Like, it means that shot of yeah. his eyes, you know, it's, it's crazy. Not just the, not just the top panel shot where it's mostly focusing on his eye, but also as she's, you know, wiping the blood off his face, you, you get yeah. another from his perspective, and then you see his face almost as if he's already femto. You know, oh the yeah, way yeah. The, the way the mask is drawn like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a one I, I mentor as well. It's really yeah. it's, it's a gaze of deaths. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's probably the same. You know, he gave you know horse uh, fast and all these people, and yeah, it could, could be femto. We wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. And, Kind of capping off that whole discussion we just had about Griffith, it's like beyond all this, he can't he can't move by himself. He can't speak. He can't really express anything except through his eyes. He's really, yeah. you know, Miura's placed him in a very unique place for a character. I'm trying to think of other forms of literature that have a character like this that was so central to the storyline and then completely dehumanized them and turned them into almost a vegetable and yet still – able to convey these swirling emotions inside of him that he's, 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 he's uh, captured between hatred and love for these, these for, for primarily for guts and able to convey those. Cause we see them have these like happy moments together, even before the eclipse, you know, Griffith will smile at him and things like that. Yet he yeah. still has these feelings inside of him. Pretty impressive uh, of Mira to be able to capture all those things in a character that can't emote properly. Uh, one thing I was going to say last time, but I forgot to, was uh, Mira drew in this little detail, and you see it in more clear uh, relief later on as they're escaping. But how is Rickard – sorry, fucking A. How is Griffith <laughs> <laughs> uh, carried, being carried by Pippin? His hands are bound. He has a little thing bound on his hands and wrapped around Pippin's arms. Mm. He didn't need to do that. You know, I've never really thought about it before. It's such a small detail. But Mir actually thought, hmm, if he can't move his arms and he has to be, uh, you know, fastened to Pippin somehow, how's he going to do it? So he actually drew this little thing around Griffith's wrist that's never focused on, but just – it's just kind of there. It's a it's – a, it's a, it makes sense detail, but wow, who thought about that kind of thing? I was just impressed by that. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's Mira. He always does this kind of stuff. Of course, there's just another example of me being like, "Wow, all the detail." Yeah, <clears throat> but I agree. I agree. It's uh, it's pretty great, and that's not something you get to see in many <clears throat> many other you know stories. Yeah. Um, Charlotte uh, has begun to change, or at least from the perspective of Anna, uh, she, as, as they're running through the sewers. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, first, I actually love that we get to see Anna complains, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, I, I think it's funny to get a, a window into a character like that, you know. It's just, you know, it's so so small, but, you know, it's the little things, you know. Yeah, I was wondering if you think Anna is now, like, you know, head maid, you know, head over all the maids in, in Falconia, well, you know. Probably, I guess. <laughs> so she did the, the wise choice, you know, wise career choice. Yeah, a wise investment in, in Princess Charlotte. Anyway, Charlotte's dedication, I've always thought it was very endearing. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, heretofore, at least, I, I mean, I had, as, as a viewer, had viewed Charlotte as kind of a naive girl. I mean, she was manipulated into being in this circumstance, but she does truly love Griffith. And you can, you can see oh, that yeah. here where she's she's willing to cast aside not only her, you know, her 
being the princess, she's ready to run off with him, you know, and to live a, a normal life, to shirk her entire life as a princess. And also beyond that, even physically, she's running through the sewers, through sewage, and she doesn't care, you know? It's, yeah, real, de- it's a real dedication. Tying her dress, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what, uh, you know, uh, I've got to say. It's, she's just, you know, wow, she's in love now. It's just sure, it's 100% sure. And it, I think the, the love that she still has for him now is uh, already planted, you know, at the time. And you, you can say, there's that panel where she says she wants to be with him, you know, like forever. It's really... Yeah, like you say, it's both endearing and it's also a proof that this is true love for her. It's not something, mm-hmm. you know, she's ever going to go back on. Right. <clears throat> well, we're, uh, the Bucky Rocket fight begins almost immediately after that and just kind of setting a scene up. I, I love primarily seeing all the different Falcons work together. Yeah. Uh, and their own individual skills. They all, have, you know, similar to the Bucky Rocket, they're specialized in their abilities and they all use their abilities in this fight. But also visually, one of the cooler things uh, is the is the lighting, and and we get instances of this a couple different times. But you know, I think Mira is uh, showing us that it's not always you know night. It's not so bright in there. And at one point, they douse the light, and it, it's really cool to see how the light affects uh, yeah. the the fight and everything. He just brought in all these different things, all the the atmosphere. Uh, the lighting, in addition to the action and the dynamics, it's just a really well choreographed, drawn 40 pages or so, or even a little bit less. It's very intense stuff yeah. happening in a short amount yeah, of pages. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, I really think it's very great. You know, like the way you see, uh, them stalking the, the Falcons, you know, before they get to the sewers. And then, like you say, the way, you know, I love when they are running, God stops them and you see, him look, you know, like he's searching. He knows something's odd, but he doesn't know what. And you see, you know, shots of his eyes and looking at, you know, like the water running down, some rat, some stuff. And mm-hmm. then boom, there's a shot where you see the guys above them. Uh, it's very, you know, I don't know how to say, but it's, it's done, you know, it's very well choreographed, you know, just, you know, agreeing with you there, but it's very, very well choreographed, all of it. Yeah. The, what, what's really cool is, you know, seeing what tips guts off immediately was a drop of water from the ceiling, you know, as if yeah. the, the guy that had, you know, you know, ambled up, uh, using his legs to, as a thing had gotten his feet wet and had dripped water onto the, I, actually, I'm, I'm not even sure it's water. I always took it to be more like, uh, you know, some small, you know, some small rock or some small oh, thing okay. like that, you know? Oh but, yeah. Uh, you know what? That is, that is what it is. Cause he's on the bricks. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Yeah, and he immediately knows to look up and, and guard against the attack. And, you know, so you see, uh, what's, again, what's cool about the, to me, this, this is the lighting, you know, he it hits Gut's sword and there's a little bit of a intense lighting effect on Gut's face as he's yeah. guarding. And then the guy goes up into the shadows immediately yeah, after re- that. Yeah, he recedes in the darkness like a, like a spider. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. It's really pretty cool. Yeah, and then immediately is attacked by the weird water guy who I, I kind of wish I could see him in full relief because, it just looks really bizarre. These guys are—I mean, they're—they are—they are humans, but they are trained and specialized in such a way that they may as well be apostles in terms of their abilities. They're superhuman abilities. Yeah. Well, you know, it's—I uh, I think it's a case. Well, first, just going to say, yeah, I also love that shot of the guy in between uh, Casca's feet. You know, like his face underwater. Like you say, yeah. it's, it's almost apostle-like. You know, that kind of you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, these guys, you know. They always remind me a bit of uh, Mosgus disciples, you know, in, in the sense sure. that they are people who have deformity, 
but the Bakiraka being a, a, a clan or a tribe that, you know, Jose uh, survives of, on toughening the body and stuff, they actually find a use for a guy that was that's just, a, you know, he's not even a, a dwarf or a midget, he's mm. just, you know, so small. And some guys, this, you know, bold dude that's got, you know, that kind of stuff. All of these, they found, you know, they train their bodies to, you know, to become good at something. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's pretty great. And like you say, it makes them, even though they are human, uh, their deformities combined with their, you know, uh, let's say enhanced abilities make them pretty cool. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I'm assuming I can call him a pygmy, uh, the guy with the dart. Yeah. Uh, shoots, shoots a dart at, at Griffith because that's obviously their target based on the mm. king's orders. Uh, and Charlotte sees it and interrupts, grabbing it, hitting, hitting her arm. What, you know, I'm going to be struck down by you for this. And that's fine. I don't mind. The look on Griffith's face here, it seems like he really does care about her. Oh, no, uh, I actually I agree. I agree. Okay. That, that look, uh, you know, that look on his eye, uh, there's that uh, upper right panel, you know, just mm-hmm. after she gets uh, hit when she falls down. Yeah, he actually really does seem to care. Of course, you know, I mean, it could be like that he cares because his investment into her was all for note or that kind of stuff. Sure. But but I, I know I think he cares. Uh, you know, I mean, she's been really, she's been all over him. Uh, ever mm-hmm. since they rescued him, and she she was a big part of uh, of his rescue. So no, I actually think he cares about her. You know, maybe yeah. not uh, as a lover or anything like that, but you know, she was loyal to him, and uh, so yeah, I think he does care. Yeah, and that's that's kind of all I meant was you know whether or not he's romantically invested in her, which I, I don't think he's at that point yet. I don't think he can let himself be have those feelings. I think we've made that. I think Mira's made that pretty clear. Yeah, uh, the, the strong feelings he has are seen as weaknesses for his character. Yeah, in, in so, any case, I'm not sure he's even a guy. You know, like I mean, in general, mm-hmm. I'm not sure he's even a guy that's very romantically. You know, uh, how to say he doesn't lean that way. You know, I, I don't think he's a guy that was ever very you know uh, sensible, sensitive, sensible. No, yeah, sensitive to these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's the way the character strikes me. He's not very into this thing. Sure, and, and so still lacking that. That it could simply be that, as you said, uh, pragmatically, he lost a a, a chess piece. Uh, oh yeah, pot- potential that the, he's thrown. You know, the big chess piece. You know, like the- yeah. Anyway, um, so the little pygmy tries to escape, and guts manages to slice him in half as he runs oh, away. Yeah. And- you know, you know I, I like just you know. <laughs> I like the way when he, you know, the guy dodges the first, you know, uh, hit. He's, you know, he's almost snickering, you know, and uh, yeah. but he gets killed by the back and slash, and you know, that's just fucking great. <laughs> yeah, just that's rebounds great. it. Yeah. <clears throat> what I really like about this is, you know, I've talked to before. I said before that the Bakiraka, the way they're so specialized, they probably have worked together for a number of years. But the first thing the guy with the long arms. Does it's us, the, the guy, you know, wondering fool, he calls him as he's looking at his dead body yeah. in the water. And basically, you just wrecked this. What the hell? You know, yeah. even though he's, he's, he's presumably his friend and comrade are dead. They're, they're very, they're very professional. And this yeah. whole transaction is really neat to me because it goes, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's above the whole, you know, vendetta or whatever. It's just simply a transaction. It's listen. Yeah. We're in the middle of this. Let's stop fighting for a moment and be business people for a moment. You know, let's make sense of this. Well, especially since the king had threatened to, you know, wipe them all out if uh, if something happened to Charlotte. So it's really the one thing that shouldn't have happened. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, actually, just to, to comment a bit on that, there's, there's a panel at the beginning of that episode, uh, the, the second backyard episode, where you see, you know, like there's these four slices of uh, Charlotte being hit, falling down, you know, everybody, you know, uh, rushing to her, and there's this one shot of uh, Griffith's eye again, and I think this one reinforces the fact that you know it was uh, not. That, that he really, that he cared that she was hit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's kind of recapping what had just happened, but yeah, know, it's, it's way more intense. The yeah. Way it's strong. So, sure. Yeah. The, the composition with the four like slices, uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's pretty great. I, I really like that shot. Uh, Casca eventually agrees to the transaction, uh, kind of bitterly. Or at least she has a little frown on her face when she agrees, knowing mm-hmm. that it's an unavoidable part of this, their circumstance to give up. Who could have acted as a hostage but now is, you know, to save her life. They can't let her die. So, of course, they have to do it. But uh, they have this really cool scene, Charlotte and, and Griffith here, where Griffith, though he can't speak, is able to communicate something to her across four panels with his mouth. Uh, yeah. Lips, mimes some kind of words to her. And we don't find out until later. I think it's volume 17, which is technically a year oh, or two. No, no, she, no. She, she says so uh... – I'm not sure it's at the end of volume 10, but. Oh, uh, yeah. It's actually you know, in the, in the presence of the king, right? Yeah, I think it's volume 11. Okay, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Sorry, she, I forgot about the little scene. She, she tells uh, Anna about it. She, she says that he told her he would come back. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you, I mean, I don't, I don't know Japanese well enough to tell you what words he said, but we can only know it through. Uh, what Charlotte conveys to Anna, and we have to yeah. assume that's what it was. You know, this uh, this mimed, you know, this mimed was out. Not something you can, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it was never meant to. It's not something you can just guess from the the way it's drawn. Yeah, I, I guess the visuals merely conveys that he was trying to and successfully did communicate to yeah. her. Yeah, that's just yeah. true. Because it's not even supposed to be in Japanese, you know, like it's a fictional language. And oh, sure, <laughs> of course. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was pretty dumb of me. Um, and yeah, and immediately afterwards, and again, I like how professional these guys are, that they were able to do this and, and the woman who controls fire or the, um, the black powder comes and takes them away for a moment and yeah. then the, the fight commences immediately. And then it's on with, uh, simultaneous attacks. You know, the guy drops down, uh, with the, uh, uh the, the water guy. And then the guy comes down from the top. Yeah. Pippin's too slow to attack the guy. And immediately after the guy from the ceiling drops, you know, this guy with the, uh, I wish they had names. They keep having to say the guy with the thing, but yeah, throws a massive harpoon, uh, bouncing it along. I'm uh, sorry. Gut, strikes guts with the sword and guts is able to deflect it, but they realize they're being watched from afar. And so they have to change their tactics because they can't just sit here. Uh, so judo gets the idea to douse the yeah. light because he's realizing. I, 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 I like the, the fact uh, that the strike is so powerful that Gus actually falls on his back, you know. Yeah, he says it felt like a cannon whenever it hit him. And uh, he says that's actually a real weapon that was used uh, in India. You know, oh. the, yeah, the, the way, the thing he uses to throw the the harpoon or the lance or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, it's something. Of course, you know, it's a fictional life, so it's fucking cool. It's like the, you know, Silat's weapons and everything like that. Those are all real weapons that were used, but of course... Uh, Berserk, they're used in a way that's really fucking cool. <clears throat> yeah. It's, that's, uh, ancient world sniping is what's happening here. <laughs> Down to the, uh, the accuracy of it. And, you know, did the real world weapon, was it such a big harpoon spear or was it like a smaller one from your, from your memory? 
Oh, honestly, I couldn't remember. But yeah, I think it was a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty big lens, you know. Okay. I mean, it's not like this, you know, it looks like it's very thick and everything like that. Right. So it was maybe not that thick or anything, but yeah, it's, it's those were really, you know, uh, how do you call, you know, harpoons? Now, there's a word for something you throw. Yeah, harpoon is. No, I'm thinking of another word. Okay. Uh, you know, it's not a lens. Mm. Fuck, it's something else. Well, Jeez. well, I don't remember, but in any way, it's, uh, that kind of, you know, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's, uh, not that big, but yeah. Right. Still, uh, still pretty long and pretty, you know, hefty, so can pierce a guy into. So Judo has an idea and he actually knows, and he's actually plotted it out enough that he gives Pip an advance mm. warning on what's going to happen in the next step. So by dousing the light, he denies the spear guy a chance of throwing. But Rickard, wow, weird. But Judo yeah. manages to create his own light source near the guy by tossing his knives, which is just a really cool idea. You know, using lighting as a tactic, you know, and later using uh, thermodynamics in this fight. Just, wow, unique tactics, unique strategies for, for combat that we all see employed very often. You know, Mira just throws in here in this one small fight. Anyway, Judo's able to take the guy out, even from the darkness, because he, you know, locked in on where the guy's position was. Yeah. And then immediately, uh, with Pippin's striking the wall, it gives them an immediate burst of light enough to take out, uh, for Guts and Casca to finish off the other two guys in yeah. one, one moment. No, it was pretty cool. And, uh, everything that fight is, is nice like that. And the way they all deflect, you know, uh, you know, the attacks before, it's, uh, Really great collaborative uh, fight. I think it's pretty unique in that regard in the story. You know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's something that we we don't get to see until Guts find his new comrades. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. We haven't seen teamwork like that, but only in a few instances uh, until recently. So it's it's mm-hmm. one of the it's one of the colder ones for sure. Yeah. And then the final Baki Raka is the woman with black powder uh, who was able to spark a chain reaction from. from all the powder she presumably scattered throughout the entire tunnel. Yeah. Her little powder, and she sparks it with her rings, and this giant plume of fire heads towards them. Uh, Griffith has the idea, and he, I don't know how, but he motions to Pippin for the, the wall, and then Pippin, uh, had struck the wall, and the fire went up as the Falcons, you know, are able to escape the blast. And Pippin gets his, the most lines he's ever had in the entire series. <laughs> Yeah. Explain that, you know, he had the idea from working in a mine and that Griffith had given him the idea to. And, you know, Guts and Hank and Griffith share a little smile for a moment there after that little nice moment. Mm. Immediately after the king learns of what had happened and just kills the woman outright, you know, no, yeah. no discussion, no debate, just, you know, nope, that's the price you pay for getting my daughter's hit. And, and I like, you know, Anna's face as she sees a woman dying. Oh, yeah. So her mouth <laughs> and everything. She's, she's like, I'm the next one. <laughs> yeah. As the king, you know, points the sword at her. Poor Anna. Charlotte uh, steps in and, you know, demands that, you know, the king, you know, halt his – actually, she she asks the king. You know, she's not mm. too harsh about it, but, you know, saying that Griffith is no longer, you know, able to, you know, seize the throne or anything. So he suffered enough. Why not let go? You know, and the king tells yeah. her – looks very candid when he tells her, I will oh, not yeah. interfere. You know, very he, serious. He, and he looks, you know, nice actually. He has that kind of forgiving look. 
Like, mm-hmm. even though he now he looks like a fucking mummy, you know, but he's like, oh, okay, don't worry, I, I promise, and everything. <laughs> yeah. As soon as, as soon as she's gone, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, what I like is comparing that, that face, almost like he's emulating the former him. It looks very yeah. proper. And then you turn a page, and then you see, like, Monster King. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's degenerate. And, and I like the way that everything... But his face, you know, yeah. is uh, has some kind of special treatment to emphasize how grass he looks. Oh yeah, as he slaps, as he slaps the guy, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 captain, the only one with a conscience left in the entire kingdom, apparently. You know, the guy that had also spoken around against using the bakiraka. Um, you know, interestingly, not notably, but interestingly. This the character here. He's never given a name. I think they call him the captain. Yeah, he's just the captain. No, he's just a uh, nameless guy. The the people in the anime chose to use him as the stand-in for Wild uh, later on, and instead of actually animating the entire Wild section, <laughs> they make this guy serve as Wild by you know uh, taking Griffith's armor off and thing, all that all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In the <laughs> anime. Anyway. Um, what the king had done is uh, send out the black dogs, which uh, we get a little background on what these guys were, uh, that they were made use in the Hundred Years' War and that they were pretty horrible uh, for wherever they were sent. I don't think Mira – we'll just go right into the wild, but uh, I, I've always thought this was a cool concept. Like It's basically a state-sanctioned apostle that's used for warfare. Yeah, and Mira doesn't develop this aspect of it. You can kind of just in, in, infer a lot of it, but so I'm I'm embellishing. But you know, Wild and his men—they were kind of like a secret military weapon, you know. And it's used. You can presume it was only used in the most dire of circumstances, given that it had collateral damage because they didn't care of one side or the other. They just liked being let loose, and you can see how he's kept sated between mm-hmm. battles, you know, with all the yeah. women, women around him, which presumably probably at a high cost. To keep all those things secret, whatever it is. So you're seeing him living in the lap of luxury and the king calls on him. But before the king calls on him, he actually says he has something to do today. Yeah. And we are told later that it's, it's, he's, he's referring to the eclipse. Uh, yeah. But uh, so yeah, he already knew in advance and he was just kind of looking forward to that. And then he has this small business to attend to before he goes and actually. Does it? But it happens that his job and the eclipse coincide with Griffith. So that's how the volume ends with him, and we see a, a full exposure of his face, knowing that he's an inhu- he's inhuman, probably likely an apostle at this oh, point. Oh yeah, well he looks like you know almost like a horse, you know a, that uh, a horse or a jackal or or just really just I don't even know. Yeah, he but he just looks like an animal. His face yeah. is very long, you know. That's the thing is that his face is very long. Yeah, it's definitely not human. Even compared to the you know the Bakirka, we said they almost look inhumans, but you know. Compared to these guys, they are just, you know, normal. Yeah. And again, this is one of those moments where you think about uh, readers that are have, reading this as the volume happens. You know, how might Guts now face an apostle like this? Yeah. And he's actually, you know, we're, we're going to get, we're not doing volume 11 yet, but it is interesting uh, putting Guts now, who heretofore had almost no rival uh, in, in, in combat other than Zod and to a, to a lesser extent. Um, Boscon? Thank you, Boscon. Yeah, that's a sad moment for me. Uh, to see him actually struggle against someone, is it's interesting to, to see how that fight goes. 
Well, yeah, especially since he's really over the top now. And it's, uh, it's yeah. funny to, it's funny to see. Well, we'll talk about that, you know, later. We will. But, we'll, 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 but I know exactly what you're going to say, and it is very interesting. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get into volume 11, uh, probably in a couple of weeks. But until then, I guess that's the show. Is there anything else we needed to add, Ozil? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think that's all. Okay. Well, guys, thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you're enjoying these rereads. We intend to keep going and until we catch up, but it'll probably be uh, I don't know two years or so. I don't I don't at the, at the pace we're going. Who knows? Yep. Yep. We got uh, as you guys know, as people that have read the series know, obviously, um, volume thirteen and volume twelve are, are very very close ahead. I have no idea how we're going to approach those. There's just so much to say on each page, but uh, we'll do it somehow. Well, just record longer, you know, sessions. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to say about the eclipse just even before we get into the actual eclipse, like the, the ideas behind it and all that stuff. So it'll probably take some time. But anyway, look forward to those and we'll be back in a couple of weeks.